We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We've been covering the Sermon on the Mount, a really great portion of Scripture uh, that challenge us, challenges us as believers to be what God has intended us to, believe, uh, to be. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves some hard questions as we go through this, and that's a good thing. You know, we are always growing on this side, or side of eternity. You know, we're not perfect, we're not perfected here. Uh, so it is, a, it is a walk, it's a pilgrimage. But uh, I really got emotionally attached to this teaching, so I'm gonna be sad to move on to the next teaching. But if you really take this as a whole, it's very, very powerful. So starting with verse one, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is probably one of the most, one of, it's up there, one of the most misunderstood and misquoted scriptures because of two reasons. Number one, the word judge. Years ago, I did a whole thing on the Greek words and what they mean, and the, the problem or the challenge is that there's a huge semantic range. There's a, just a wide range of what judge can mean. And second is because of personal bias, many will just take the part of the meaning that they like, insert it because it fits their lifestyle. But judge can mean anywhere if you, if you take the word from an opinion or a small decision on the lower semantic range all the way up to damning somebody to hell. Now, of course, the former we're required to do, but the latter is only meted out by God. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says to take the uh, person in persistent sin, flaunting their sin to the church, infecting the other believers, and cast him out for a time. That's a judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us as a church, shame on us if we can't uh, settle disputes amongst believers in the church instead of going out to the pagan courts. That's a judgment. And he also says, don't you know you will judge angels? That's a judgment. And we're going to talk about fruit later, which, you know, uh, is a judgment of itself. So what gives? Well, the key is always to find out what God wants us to do, not what we would like to believe. The first verse, judge not that you, not, that you be not judged. The Hebraic Roots Bible says, don't condemn and you won't be condemned. That's how they read it. Uh, don't cross the line from what's required to harshness. And in verses 2 through 5, Jesus qualifies that. In verse 2, he says, in the same way and measure we judge, it'll come back to us. I'll give you an example. If James over here and I see him doing something and it's a sin, and I know it's a sin, the Bible says so, and I'm beating him up and I'm getting on him and I'm making him feel this big and he feels castigated. Okay, I judged my brother James there. Now, when I do that same sin, I've already condemned myself because I was so harsh on my brother because I knew it was wrong that there's nowhere for me to go. So it's interesting because it goes back to us when, when it's our turn, right? The same way and measure you meet it out, 
It's going to come back to you. And God is clear throughout his scriptures that he wants us to show the same mercy that he's shown us. One of the biggest complaints about church after probably number one, they just want your money, right? Somewhere in two, three, and four, there's another complaint about church. You know, I went in there and they picked me apart. They had a critical spirit. And there are new people that come into the church and they feel unwelcome. They feel uncomfortable. Everyone's staring at them. Oh, gee, I'm not dressed like everybody else. I don't talk like everybody else. And they don't come back because they feel judged by those in the church with a critical spirit. Now, I would say this. Sometimes we have it reversed. More grace should be shown to the unbeliever coming in with their sin or the, uh, the new converts still maintaining some of those old ways because the Lord still needs to work on them. But then we give ourselves a pass if we've been in the church all of our lives. We should know better. If anything, we should judge ourselves harsher than we judge that new person coming into the church. Verses 3 and 4. We go from harshness now to hypocrisy. And the religious leaders of the day, no doubt Jesus was speaking about the religious leaders of the day and society in general. And you can see this embodied in the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I'll just paraphrase. Uh, Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader. And he looks up to the heavens and says, I tithe. I, I, I'm a religious man. I'm so glad I'm not like other men. And then the tax collector can't even look up to heaven. He hangs his head. He beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, Lord. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those two do you think was justified before the Lord? I bet some of them thought it was the Pharisee. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the tax collector was justified that very day. He came to God with his sin, repented, and the Lord accepted that. So, this, um, you know, this idea of the beam in the eye and the speck is, is very interesting. Because the, the deal is, if I'm going to tell Russ over here that he needs to be friendly to new people, am I being friendly to new people? If I ask Harold to pick up some of those papers on the floor... Am I willing to pick up those papers on the floor as well? So before we look at the sliver in someone's own eye, do we have a log in our eye? And I've always wanted to do this illustration, so I'm going to do it today. (laughs) So I have a beam sticking out of my eye. And if I can do this without popping my eye out today, that would be wonderful. And I see Russ over here. And Russ, you know, when the sun is just right... He's, there's a sliver. I can see a sliver in his eye. And, you know, I'm trying to get that. Russ, stop moving. Come on. Hold still. You see how ridiculous that is? But if I remove the beam out of my eye, Jesus was the best teacher. And he, he knows the human body. And, of course, I would think of this. But you take out the beam, and now you see in stereo, if you have depth perception instead of mono. So you actually can see more clearly. But the question is, does it make sense that someone with a worse spiritual condition, the person with the beam, can pick out the flaws of somebody with a little sliver or a little speck? Oh, it absolutely does. If you find the church gossip or the person at work who's always talking about someone else or a person with a critical spirit, it's a diversion. A little psychology here. It's a diversion. They have to keep putting the focus on another person to hide their own insecurities or their own shortcomings. So it makes perfect sense. Don't follow the one who's always trashing and and always uh, drawing attention away from themselves onto somebody else. 
And if I'm going to point out another sin, it better be with love and it better be without hypocrisy. And really, we should be part of the solution. I've had uh, Christians in my life over the years who have pointed things out to me. And I was, I was accepting, more accepting of it when I thought and I believed that they were really looking out for my best interests. When I thought that they really cared about me. And you know what? As painful as it was, I accepted it because I knew they did it in love. So if somebody's struggling with an addiction issue, did you ever think to say, hey, here's my cell phone number. If you get that desire to look at things you shouldn't be looking at on the computer or to take that drink or to put that needle in your arm, here's my, here's my cell phone number. Why don't we pray? Why don't we get together? Maybe I can talk you out of it. So to be part of the solution and not just pick somebody apart and then go your own way. He says, first remove the plank. See clearly the third point. When we get ourselves right, we can accurately and lovingly judge another situation and not have it just be a diversion from our own sin. And there's two extremes uh, with this. The first extreme is, again, the harshness, you know, the person who feels condemned. And then the other extreme is the person who goes through the church, like in 1 Corinthians 5, who is a manipulator. And if something is said, they say, oh, brother, brother, you can't judge me. You don't know my heart. That's just an excuse. That doesn't fly. That's just an excuse to do what they want to do. Verse 6, Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. The Hebraic Roots Bible says, don't hang earrings on a dog. But if we take these two together, it's very interesting because in the natural world, See, if you're going to use an illustration, a spiritual illustration with a pig or a dog for a person, it's actually not very flattering. I'm sorry for the dog lovers out there. But dogs will eat anything, including feces from another animal. They're, anything that looks good, they'll just eat it. Pigs, if you talk to farmers, if a pig goes down in the field and the other ones know it's dead and they're hungry, they'll eat that pig. Okay, so it's not a really good picture. But if I go to a pig or a dog and I say, here, I have something priceless for you. And if I give this to you and you sell it, you can have all the dog food and all the pig food you want for a lifetime. They're going to take a bite of that pearl, that precious pearl, break their teeth, and they're going to turn and attack me because it didn't fit and it didn't meet their immediate desires. Right? Now, in a spiritual sense, if you give a piece of wisdom, of God's wisdom, to a fool or a carnal believer, you're wasting your time. And they will turn and attack you. They'll get mad at you. Similar to animals, fools won't recognize something holy. They'll turn on you because you didn't give them something of the flesh, which is their, what they're looking for immediately. In Luke 23, 9, you would think, well, Jesus would witness to everyone. Herod wanted to see Jesus. Let me see Jesus. We finally have him. I want to see him do something, a magic trick or, you know, do a miracle. Jesus went before Herod and did nothing. Spoke, didn't speak, didn't do anything because Herod was a fool. Jesus would have been wasting his time. And sadly enough, sometimes we have to do that. And by implication here, we make a judgment to someone who may be piggish and that we may not have to bother with. Now, we don't damn and we can't know for sure who is saved, but certainly we make discernment decisions about judging or judgments with handling God's truths. Have you ever um, maybe even been denied a promotion because you're a believer? Have you ever been physically assaulted because you're a believer? 
I, I know that there was times where I would maybe try to talk to somebody about the Lord, and all of a sudden, and it is spiritual, something I said gets them so tweaked, and they become aggressive. You know, listen, <laughs> that's not what it should come down to. At that point, you know, you just pack up your tools and you go home because they're not willing to listen to those things, the things of God, right? And, of course, the persecuted church, which I'm going to come to, every day their life is on the line just because they're believers. And they have to make a discernment who to share the things of the kingdom with and who not to. Verse 7. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Prayer. Is this just the Jesus is just quickly changing subjects? Well, we'll see with the next verse, not necessarily. Prayer is important. And it's really cool. As I was in prayer today, uh, we have in this church, we have uh, anyone who wants to come into my office at 1015, standing room only, that would be fine. We pray before service. The ushers were praying in the, in the library. And the women are often praying. So what's really amazing is this is a house of prayer. And we need that house of prayer. I need to know what to give you this morning. Because it can't come from me. It has to come from the Lord. It has to be an accurate discernment and interpretation of the scripture. So prayer. We need to know what God's truths are and how to impart his wisdom and his truth. This subject, especially judging, requires a lot of prayer. Now the Greek tense, ask, seek, knock, are imperatives. And they're understood as continual. You must keep on asking. Don't give up. Don't give up. What's really sad is that there's a seriousness to prayer. You know, Jesus spoke about the persistent widow. She kept going before the judge day in and day, and day out. And the judge eventually granted her request. And Jesus says, well, but your father in heaven is more righteous than that pagan judge. How much more will he give you the things that you need? So there's a, a persistence there. And I have to say, sadly enough, there are many who get involved, maybe read the Bible, maybe pray, maybe give it a shot, walking the Christian walk, and they give up because things didn't happen fast enough. However, their earthly pursuits of wealth and gain and uh, degrees and, and um, standing in the community, they never give up on. How sad. Now, I'll tell you this. Before anyone thinks that I'm condemning, um, I was the person who lived on the other side of the fence. And honestly, I probably came to God last. I looked at my earthly pursuits. I tried to make myself happy. I tried to fulfill myself. And I went in every possible direction. And God was always on the back burner. When I finally came to him in my late 20s, um, he really was the last choice. That is how good and merciful our God is. He'll let us go our own way as long as we want, but he's always there. And he doesn't get insulted. But don't give up. Pray, ask. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's communion with our Heavenly Father. And he says, human parents and you being evil, or in other words, we're sinners. We as sinner parents can give good things to our kids. How much more God as the perfect parent to us? When we pray for God's wisdom, it also encompasses spiritual discernment, proper judgment, and properly dealing with others. And verse 8 is a bold statement. I love Jesus's unconditional, bold statements. He says, everyone who asks. 
yeah, but I, I wanted to get um, you know, a brand new Harley Davidson under the, under the tree this Christmas, and you know, I woke up and it wasn't there. <laughs> Prayer is not a celestial wish list, but absolutely everyone asks for, and I believe this, salvation. If you've come here today, maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, this is for you. Do you want to know the Lord? Do you want to walk with the Lord? Do you want to understand his truths? I believe he says everyone who asks will get these things. You see, God can't grant us answer to prayer that goes against his will. It goes against his nature. God can't give us something in prayer that's detrimental and that's going to harm us. He can't do that. But everyone who asks in according to his will will receive. Uh, There's a parallel scripture, Luke 11, 13, that says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Wait a minute, I wanted the Harley under the tree. How did we get to the Holy Spirit here? You see, the carnal believer or the fleshly person will look at this and go, the Holy Spirit, what can I do with it? You know, I don't, it, it won't give me letters after my name, the Holy Spirit. It won't help me to be well known in my community. The Holy Spirit, there's nothing tangible I can do with this. Just like the dog or the pig. They're not interested in that. But to the born-again believer, it can open the door to God's truths and discernment and righteous judgment. Jesus said, and I quoted this the last time, I'll quote it again. He says, little flock, God's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. You know, that really should put things in perspective. What are we asking for? What have we asked for that we didn't get, that we've kind of, you know, maybe quit on? And maybe realize, looking back, maybe that wasn't good for me. You know, God knew better. God wants to give us the kingdom So do we really think that he's stingy with good things and withholding good things from us? Absolutely not. Take all of scripture in its totality. Verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's so so amazing. We look at these like, where where does that come from? Where is he going with this? This is known as the golden rule. Now, The skeptic will say, well, Pastor Joe, I did my research and I found out that that saying was around way before Jesus. Hmm, he might have something there. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Hillel, whose school uh, predated Jesus, says this, quote, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. Go and learn. Now, that's in the negative, And Aristotle and Confucius have said similar things. And who said it first? Who knows? But that's in the negative. In other words, it's the proverbial Mexican standoff. I've got to drop on you. You've got to drop on me. You lower your barrel and I'll lower mine. You know, your muzzle. Don't shoot me and I won't shoot you. We're good. Jesus said he turned it into a positive, which is much harder to do. He said, do what you would want done to you. He didn't say don't do. He flipped it first. Wow. That's the guiding principle in dealing with others and making fair judgments without hypocrisy. Imagine if the whole world followed the golden rule in the positive. We are constantly doing for others what we would have want done for us. And they're constantly doing for us and others. And, you know, I've said this about marriage. If you put into a marriage and we're proactive in marriage, both spouses, marriage will go well. When each person in the marriage starts saying, well, I want my needs met. Well, I want my needs met. It becomes a standoff. You know what I'm saying? Don't hurt me and I won't hurt you. Okay. We'll live in this house. We won't speak to each other. 
What if we applied the golden rule to marriage and we're constantly blessing each other? The fruit from that marriage is amazing. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we do well and sometimes we don't do well. But any relationship, okay, do first. Imagine if all Christians followed this. Wow, (laughs) how the church would be transformed. You know, let's tie in judging with this. There are some that will come to me and say, (laughs) a lot, you know, they'll say, I wasn't here last Sunday, and this is the reason. And I stopped them. I'm like, I don't sit up there with a scorecard. Oh, the Johnsons weren't here two Sundays in a row. Hmm, I'm going to use them in my sermon next time. You know? I say to people, listen, I think the better of you. Please, don't even go into detail. To think the better of each other, right? Because I will tell you this, that when it's my turn, and when I'm out in the hallway, and I run my mouth too quickly and say something stupid... And I go, oh, I hope they didn't hear that. I want you to look at me and say, you know, Pastor Joe's been faithful for the last seven or so years as the pastor, and I'm going to overlook that one. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to do to you first and think the better of you, because when it comes to be my turn, because I'm fallible, I want the same in return. So there's the golden rule when it comes to judging. Verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult or confined is the way which leads to life or everlasting life. And there are few who find it. Here's where the teaching of Jesus can become a little uncomfortable, depending on where we are in the spectrum. The next three illustrations will reinforce that there's only one of two categories in life and the afterlife, and that's it. Now, as Americans, we go to the supermarket and, you know, toothpaste. I mean, there's like 400 different brands. Of, you know, I hate to go shopping because there's just too much choice. I'll pick something out and then I'll go further down the aisle. And like, well, this one looks better. So we are so used to choice, so different from those who have grown up in a communist country where there's one choice and long lines. So this this can be a little bit difficult for us as Americans, but understand in the spiritual realm, it isn't so. Jesus will indicate those two categories in the gates, in the trees, and in the buildings. And it appears that the percentage of those truly desiring eternal life is minimal. See, the world here has a lot to offer. And, you know, if you look at movies and legends of years ago, uh, The Fountain of Youth, wow, I can live forever. The Picture of Dorian Gray, you know, there's some weird movies, some old movies, of course, the vampire movies. And there's a a message there. There's a third option, or there's an allure for that third option, eternal life here. Now, the old vampire movies, you know, the guy, he was an older guy, he had a widow's peak, he had pasty skin, and he's like, I've come to suck your blood. You know what I'm saying? I mean... That's the old vampire picture. I actually was um, at work and somebody left the TV on and I'm watching what's on and it just came into it halfway and there's a guy and a girl and they're fighting and they're throwing cars around at each other and stuff and I'm like, what is this, a superhero? Then the fangs come out. I'm like, oh, this is a vampire movie. Well, the vampire movies have got a revamped image based on the youth. 
there's an allure towards the youth. So the vampires now, the men are six foot three and they have broad shoulders and they're handsome and they have a tan. And the female vampires have long, shiny black hair and they're shapely and they're, they're youthful and they're sexy. And, you know, you can live forever here and fulfill all your, your fleshly desires. That's the third option. But there is no third option. That option is you can be your own God. You can be the master of your own destiny. You can make your own reality. Some of that stuff has found its way into Christianity. It's not good. There are actually, um, and I, I know a person who works in the movie industry, he says that there's bars in the city where uh, vampire wannabes come in and they all have the, their um, canines lengthened and pointed from the dentist. And they, they have this big thing of these drinking parties and, and stuff about wannabe vampires. It's this desire. It's, it's just kind of it's a little kooky. But the desire is that third option, to be your own God and to live eternally here. God says, no way. Here's a reality check. Wide and gate, or the wide gate and the broad way equals hell, and many find it. Now, when I was a teen, um, I had some older friends, and she was a good mom. She would say, no, you're not doing that with them. <laughs> and I'd say, but mom, everyone's doing it. And she would say, what do mom say? If, if everyone was jumping off a cliff, would you follow them? And I didn't answer because the answer might have been yes. But she had a point. And according to this, the whole world, most of the world, is jumping off that spiritual cliff. And it's sad. Getting a little closer to home, but every Christian I know is doing it. Every Christian I know is watching it. Every Christian I know is listening to it. Fill in the blanks. It still doesn't make it right. You see, there's a word remnant in the Old Testament, and it carries through to the New Testament. And it's constantly used in Scripture, and it's sobering. That means there's a small amount that are going to get through. And it's not because God prohibits them. It's because their desire is not for him. See, when the Lord comes back and takes his own from the, from the earth, which we understand as the harpazo or the rapture, uh, in Every church, there'll be, you know, different varying amounts of people who call themselves Christians that may still be sitting in the seats. Well, I got news for you. I'm going. I'm going on the first train. You know, and when I'm gone, you can come up here and get the keys out of my pocket. You can go into my office. You can write blank checks. I really don't care what you do because I'm not going to be here. You know, knock yourself out. But you're going to have to go through the tribulation. And it's not going to be good. It's going to be a very hard time. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes, uh, bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So we move to the tree illustration. Now, this is the way God did things in the natural world. An apple tree can exist for hundreds of years, and it will only grow apples. God said in Genesis, you know, the fruit will be uh, every tree and, and every fruit according to its kind. Now, in the spiritual realm, it's the same thing. There's fruit that we produce. Everyone produces some type of fruit. And really, it's a manifestation based on who you are inside, what you do on a regular basis. Things that you say, Jesus say, is a reflection of your heart. Things that you do. 
So we're looking at fruit here. Now, he speaks about false prophets, but understand that Greek word can have, again, it's a range. Uh, it can also mean a religious imposter. And the form of judging is necessary to find out these imposters by their fruits, especially in the early church. Remember, Satan used uh, pressures from the outside to try to destroy the church. But he also was very cunning and he used forces from the inside to try to infiltrate and destroy and poison the church from the inside. So these believers had to see and understand who were the ravenous wolves. Now, a ravenous wolf, understand this, in sheep's clothing, sheep's clothing. So the, the false teacher or the false believer isn't going to come all wicked looking with runny eyes and you know, really long fingernails and get you. They're going to look like everyone else and possibly They'll look like very nice sheep. They'll have nice fleece. You know, it'll be shiny. They may smile. They may be attractive, whatever the case may be. But they're ravenous wolves. In other words, their motives are to destroy you. They're to take your focus away from the Lord. They're to destroy the church from the inside. They're to deceive the youth and the next generation of possible Christians. That's what they're designed to do. Uh, Revelation 13, a description of the beast, the Antichrist. It says, he looked and had two horns like a sheep, but spoke like a dragon. Wow, it's pretty frightening. And they're out there. Jesus is saying, look at the fruit before you follow any leader. The Old Testament prophets gave a true message to the children of Israel. They didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. They said, listen, God's upset with you. You know, you've really turned away. You've gone after false gods and the judgment is coming. Well, often because of their message, the authorities would take them, imprison them, or kill them. Sometimes the religious uh, community would kill them because they were upsetting the apple cart. But the false prophets would tell the folks what they wanted to hear. And they were often treated well by the world because of it. Now, we can look at this over the years. If I say this, the name of some of these men, uh, between them there are dozens of false prophecies that they've made. The years have come, things haven't happened, and they still continue to have a following. I don't understand why, because in the Old Testament, according to God's word, that shouldn't be the case. Um, Charles Russell from the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, Joseph Smith from the Mormons, Harold Camping, <laughs> The guy really gets under my skin. And after May, I'm not going to talk about him anymore because he said that this year, this May, the world's going to end. And I'm sure if he's still alive and that won't happen, uh, he'll have to say something else. And that's what they do. They tweak it and say, well, I didn't really say that. What I meant was, and they try to spiritualize it because their false prophecies don't come to pass. Again, if that was the truth, we should all just get retired and you know, <laughs> have a big party or something. I don't know. But it's not going to happen because God is not going to allow that to happen. Jesus said only the Father in heaven knows those things. So these, this is the litmus test to be able to throw out the bad trees or stop following them because of the bad fruit that's produced. And they are a false representation of God. In the United States, there's a lot of acceptance, unfortunately, of the watered-down gospel and outright heresy. But understand this, and this is what some don't like to hear. There are false followers See, as we go, as we get to the end of this, this chapter, some of these things are really going to be uh, thought-provoking. Because we all, and listen, when my pastor would preach and I'd be sitting in the back and he would quote James 3.1 and the leaders would be held to a higher standard, I'm like, yeah, right on, preach it. I don't have any responsibility. It's not true. <laughs> there are false followers too. As we start to read the scripture, it's going to get pretty hot. It's going to get pretty intense. 
The follower may say, well, yeah, I like the Christian culture. There's a lot that has to offer. But, you know, the whole thing about hell and the blood of Christ. And, you know, I finally found a church where they don't talk about sin. I have no responsibility. I have no accountability. Right. And nobody's getting saved in that church either. It's a church full of false full of false converts. There are false teachers, and the followers like what they're hearing. The Bible says that they have itching ears. Oh, I want to go somewhere where the message is going to tickle my ears and meet my lifestyle and my desires. False followers. And I I would venture to say that there's going to be a lot more false followers going down the wrong path than false teachers just by the sheer mathematics of it. So just like natural fruit, spiritual fruit, we can tell if we're growing or not, if a person's truly in the faith uh, or if the roots are bad. And the consequence, verse 19, when Jesus speaks about fire, he doesn't say it for nothing. When he speaks about destruction, he doesn't say it to hear himself talk. Verse 19 says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, hellfire. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Boy, that is frightening. Well, I'm an average believer, and I don't do any of those things. I haven't cast out a demon or prophesied and Jesus is saying that those who call themselves Christians and do this, he's going to say, depart from me. Well, what hope is there for me? You see, the disciples did that, and the followers at the time did that with the religious leaders. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall, know, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the average person said, I don't get it. These guys are so meticulous. They've devoted their life to the Lord. This is pretty heavy stuff right here. Probably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to get through. This is a litmus test for those who are truly in Christ, those that do the will of the Father. Many claim salvation, but they're not saved. But then isn't prophesying, casting out demons, and doing wonders all in, the, uh, in Christ's name mean that, that something's going on there? Make no mistake, the name of Christ is powerful, and demons fear it. And some have used the name of Christ, even the Apostle Paul says that, uh, for gain. And they've done amazing things through the name, but their hearts were wrong when it came to it. Not everyone in ministry is in ministry for the right reasons. Right? Not everyone who's in the church is in the church for the right reasons. There are some that come and do these things, but maybe their desire is to be noticed. Maybe in the world they couldn't make it, so they come into the Christian genre and say, hey, I'm doing pretty well here. Some worship teams do that too. I could really make a lot of money in this genre. And they just have the, light, the right lyrics to get Christians to buy the music. Okay, There are some that uh, have a Jesus complex. And you'll meet them. You'll see them. And they do more things to damage the church than anything else. Maybe they've been a victim at some point. They're going to, on their watch, no one else will be a victim. And they'll come in and they'll amass a following. And it's a it's a psychological gap or, or need or desire for self-aggrandizement. I have to have a following. The authority junkies, I've got to have people under me, right? You know, in the police departments, you give a young kid a badge and a gun and, you know, it's a recipe for disaster sometimes. 
So uh, a new recruit has to go through a psychological test. They have to go through all these batteries to try to weed out those that are in there for the wrong reasons. And there's a lot of things and checks and balances to, uh, there's um, a mentoring program with, with rookies. They partner up with older cops and they, they, they have to evaluate them and make sure that they're not in the job for the wrong reason. So there are some that just want to have control and power over others, right? So that's the, what other answer can we come up with? They look good, they say the right things, they know the Bible, they do miracles, they do powers. Well, we know that in the end times, when the satanic influences are going to come full frontal on the, uh, on the earth, what's going to happen is they know the Bible, the demons know the Bible, they know who Jesus is, they know the word, they know who the Father is, and they're going to be doing signs and wonders, but they're going to be lying signs and wonders. Pretty, pretty heavy stuff here. My pastor always said to me, you can tell a lot about a person when you take something away from them if they're in leadership. If they kick and scream and throw a tantrum, it probably reinforces that it should have been taken away from them. The true person who is in leadership for the right reasons will do it because of the Lord. And I will say this, if God chooses to remove me and have Pastor Anthony come as your senior pastor, he's a good man. You should follow him. If God, for whatever reason, tell and listen, I, I don't have any secrets. I'm not leading into anything. <laughs> so let me just preface it with that. But true, I'll step aside and let him come in here because I want what's right for the Lord. If I'm getting weird or I'm doing things that it isn't about me, it's about the Lord. And if we're not in it for the right reasons, then our hearts are wrong and our motives are wrong. So there's hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy in the religious system back then, and it's the same today. Some of them were living a double life, right? Some of them were uh, using Christ's name for gain. And today there's a whole religion of men who believe that you should be wealthy beyond belief, starting from nothing, on the back of Jesus Christ. Just keep soaking the people. Just keep soaking them. Say things that manipulate them. Try to separate them from their money. And there's books written on this stuff. Jesus will say to some of them, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want that to happen to me. And I don't think you want that to happen to you. I never knew you will be the four most chilling words you will ever hear if you're not his. So my question to you, followers of Christ, is number one, do you really know him? Well, how do I know if when I get there, he's going to say, I never knew you? Is this like Islam where we don't know if God's going to accept us until the end? Absolutely not. Start with, do you know him? If you really know him, then he's probably not going to say, I never knew you. But it's a, it's a self-evaluation. Do I really know the Lord? Do I really know him? And listen, I'm being repetitive because I need to be. We're going to eventually get into more encouraging and lifting up scriptures. But this needs to be said. Because if you're honest with yourself and you don't know him, then he's probably going to say, I never knew you. Did your walk with the Lord cost you anything at all? Did you sacrifice a promotion? Did you, um, did you sacrifice popularity amongst your peers before you were saved? Um, Jesus, it cost him his life. I'm just going to take out this uh, the voice of the martyrs again every day in Indonesia and uh, all these different areas and countries. Christians are being tortured just because they're believers. Here's a picture of a woman who's horribly disfigured. And this will be out on the info table if you're close enough to see. Uh, her village was attacked just because they were Christians. 
They burned the village down. She barely escaped with her life. Her face melted. You could see that the eyeball was burned. She's partially blinded. And when she smiles, her skin is all wrinkled because the skin has lost its elasticity. She, but this, listen, this, this smile, it can't be faked. This is a smile of the joy of the Lord. Even after that, this is the real deal right here. You might say, I'm a mean parent, but sometimes my son can be a little negative. He could be a little bit of a downer. So I took this picture and I pinned it up on his bedroom wall. So I said, you look at it when you wake up, you look at it when you go to sleep. If she can smile, you can smile. Knock it off. (laughs) A lot of you were saying, I'm glad he's not my father. (laughs) Did you give up anything to follow him? Did you change it all? Did you sacrifice anything in your lifestyle? If the answer is no, 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 then basically you walked on your path of life, you bumped into Jesus, he had a life-changing message, earth-shattering, offered the, the, the picture of eternal life and repentance, and what we did was re- we reduced him down to an idol, walked right past him, put him in our rucksack with the rest of the idols, and continue on in our life. That is not what it means to be a Christian. I think it's very clear here in Scripture. You know, uh, Pastor Anthony and I were marveling about Peter Parkas' testimony two uh, Sundays ago. Here's a guy who was a drug addict, caused him to be homeless. I, I didn't know this about him before he came up. It truly was the Lord. And I'm like, where is this going? <laughs> but he said he knew when he heard the parable of the wheat and the tares that he was a tear. But he didn't want to be a tear. And it took a while before his life changed when he started to walk with the Lord, but that guy's the real deal. James 2 tells us you can have faith, but is it saving faith? Because the demons believe and know everything that we do, and then some, but they're not going to heaven. So the question is, which camp do you belong to? The one that you hear, obey with good motives, and are saved? Or hear, ignore, not really care, and you're destroyed? They just be in the world because this isn't doing anything for you. Verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell And great was its fall. Last illustration. Building materials. Foundation. What what does our life look like? Here's the sayings and does them them out of a pure heart with right motives. When we look at these two buildings and the things that happen, what we realize is when we profess Christ, our profession will be tested. Now, certainly this is an illustration of judgment. Judgment. What is the final state of your edifice? It depends on what it's built on. It could just be completely collapsed and the building materials can wash away with the flooding. Or it can be built on the right foundation and no matter what happens, it isn't going anywhere. This is neat because in that area uh, that Jesus was speaking, in certain of those areas, they would have flash floods. So if you were building a house, of course you would want to build your house on some type of stable environment, not just sand or clay because this is what would happen to your house. 
It's so cool how Jesus used uh, daily and, and observable um, illustrations to, to discuss spiritual truths. But even if we look today on our application of our lives, because the house that was built on the sand when the sun was shining and it was beautiful weather and the birds were chirping, nothing happened to the house. So it's so easy to profess Christ when things are going well, isn't it? But what happens when the storms come? Do we always revert back to the world? Or is faith in God obvious in our trials? What are we trusting in? (laughs) By a show of hands, how many people, aside from me, have been under general anesthesia for a surgery? Wow! (laughs) Boy, this is the church of the infirm. (laughs) See, you learn something new every day. I hope I didn't violate any HIPAA uh, rules. You know, I think we trust as a society too much in our surgeons. Now, I will tell you, I've had some good surgeons. I woke up, what was removed was, should have been removed. They put me together. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm alive. But we, I'll tell you why we trust too much on our surgeons, because they give you this huge disclaimer form, and you've got to read everything, and then you have to sign it before you go under. And doctors pay. And now listen, I'm not sticking up for doctors, you know, but they are fallible. They're human beings, they make mistakes, right? That's why their malpractice insurance is so high because we expect to be in better shape when we wake up than when we went under, and that's not always the case. The first time I read one of those forms, it basically said, uh, you could die, we could paralyze you, we could take out the wrong organ, we could leave a sponge in you, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> are you asleep yet? No, give me more, you know what I'm saying? I don't even read them anymore, I just sign them and I say, Lord, I pray that The doctor had a good night last night and had good sleep, you know? But we trust too much in the things of the world, don't we? When you, if today you lived in the Middle East and you had leprosy or you, and you couldn't afford uh, the drugs for it, or you had a disease or you were poor and you didn't know where your next meal was going to come in today, people live like that. They have to trust the Lord. We just go to the supermarket. We just go to the doctor. Okay, but we need to trust God more because when the storm comes, if we're not used to trusting God, we're going to have a really hard time with that storm. Verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus taught with authority because he really believed it because he was the word of God, because he is God's mouthpiece. He is the Lagos. So they were blown away by his teachings. A lot of the scribes and the religious teachers, yeah, they read some of the Bible, but then they would quote Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, and uh, they got into these little clubs, and they would uh, uh, quote the, the Mishnah and the Talmuds and all this kind of stuff, and God was far removed. That's why Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said, because by the time you know, over the thousands of years, the law was so twisted and convoluted and men had ways of how to get around God's law, it, it was unrecognizable anymore. But Jesus spoke as having authority. And the question is, when we read the word, when we talk to someone else about something that we've memorized in scripture, do we really believe it? Or is it just a flippant answer because we remembered it and somebody taught us in Sunday school? Right? Jesus spoke with authority. 
And this is really cool because if you look at the beginning, Jesus went up on the mountain. His disciples followed him. He's opened his mouth, started teaching. I don't know how long this went on for, but it started to catch on. Maybe a, a, somebody was tending sheep and they started to listen and they're like, wow. And they went home and told their parents. So but by the time Jesus was done, it wasn't just the disciples. There were crowds around him because God's word is attractive to our soul. It is like water to a thirsty soul. So when dealing with ourselves and others, we need to be fair and look at each situation without hypocrisy and condemnation. Now, I will say this, that Pastor Anthony taught this last Wednesday on Nehemiah, and boy, there were so many parallels. So and we didn't even compare notes, so check it out. Completely different book in the Old Testament, and it, I was, it was great. And I, I honestly didn't steal anything from him. <laughs> but we're required to use discernment, judge fairly, and look at the situation as from God's eyes. Ask him for that wisdom. And when we judge, we should also make an honest determination about ourselves. Don't just look at somebody else. Look at our own situation. Are we truly in the faith? Are we truly the Lord's? If not, like Peter Parkas two Sundays ago, he was a tear and didn't want to be. He wanted to be in the kingdom. And he pursued God and then was welcomed in. And God turned his life around completely. So at the end of this chapter, it only comes down to two categories. And the question is, which one are you in today? Let's pray.